Let us pray once again. Oh God, it is the power of your cross that gives us forgiveness that through the cost of the blood of your Son, we are saved. Lord, we marvel at your provision for us and we now pray that as we approach your word, you would speak to us and show us Show us as a church, particularly as Theta Baptist Church, Lord, how to obey you in every area of our life. In every age of our life, in every moment of our life, whether we are working, whether we are at home, Lord, whether we are far or near, Lord. Help us to see what your word would have us do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, if you observe ants, you can learn a lot. Go to the ants as Proverbs. They, there's something that researchers have shown that ants are even able to sacrifice time and even their efficiency to teach other ants how to find food, to benefit the whole society of ants. Uh, there was a research published in 2006 that observe an ant, a specific type of ant, the temnothorax albipennis, uh, that's the name of the, the, the type of ant that goes and finds food and chooses, however, another ant to accompany and find food. Because the, the second ant does not know where, the way to find the source of food, and so the leader will teach her through a process called tandem running. And so the teacher ant runs along the path to find food and the student follows behind. Often they stop to locate specific landmark where food is found. And when the student is ready, it runs forwards and tap the teacher on the back legs, believe it or not. And the timing to find food, it's an average of 201 seconds. Whereas the ant could go alone in 200 seconds, she decides to pick another ant and teach her, and that leads to an average of 310 seconds of delay, which might be detrimental for the teaching ant. However, she decides to lead this younger ant four times slower to be accompanied by this, so you ask why? Well, because, because they are very closely related type of uh, nest mates and their society as a whole will benefit through this process, which appears to be slower, but it actually ac accomplishes the goal. And so, friends, there's something similar to this ant analogy to what is supposed to happen in the church. Tonight, we just like for an ant eel, wants to explore the qualities of a healthy church. Uh, my New King James uh, heading here is the quality of a sound church. As we start chapter 2, we continue our journey through this pastoral epistle to Titus that Paul the Apostle wrote to, wrote to Titus. Last chapter in the last few evening service, we looked at some characters of the leaders, both bad leaders and good leaders. The qualifications in particular for elders in the church, as opposed to the disqualified false teachers that are crept into the churches at Crete. 
And now this chapter looks to the church as a whole. And we look at the, the gospel doctrine that produces good works. That was our theme. But what is a good work? A good work is the work of the righteous. It's a work that flows from a gracious person who has experienced the grace of God. First thing we, we learn in the gospel is that no one can be justified by God to, before God through his own works. And so now, as you are saved by the gr gratuitous gift of God, with no string attached, then flows out of this a sympathy toward your neighbors. And you, we saw this morning in the, in that you are not, these works are not justifying in themselves, but they are evidence of a faith that is indeed justifying. Now, notice that works without faith, without true trust in Christ, are not true good works because they come from a bad motive. Either you're trying to justify yourself before God, either you're trying to outweigh the wrongs that you do before a holy God, thinking that by doing something good, now this is going to cover the bad. Or maybe you do works because you compare with other people and you want to feel good about yourself. That is not what true good works are. They're done in true faith toward God and toward what He has done for us at the cross. See, the problem of the Pharisee was they were doing things, but they were doing things for the wrong motive. But now we come to the lives of Christians. Now we come to that grace of God that has been received vertically. That you realize that He died on the cross for your sins. That on that cross He paid the wrath of God for your sin. But now it flows horizontally in the way that you treat each other. And what often happens in uh, epistles in the New Testament. We have what they're called household codes. And what chapter 2 seems to do here is exactly that. There are several categories of people. And the same principle of this grace of God that should lead to good works now applies to several age groups, several contexts, whether it's the family, whether it's work. We're going to look at the list of, uh, I'm, I'm promising if you look at, uh, the people that are behind those instructions are actual churches that Titus is shepherding. And these people are struggling with various sins and temptations. But God, through Paul, still expects them to display Christian character qualities in those areas. That shows you that Christian obedience is not legalism. But it is actual obedience to God's word that is at stake here. And that, those are the qualities. Let's look at these qualities of a healthy church. I know me and Rick are reading a book together about that very same question. What is a healthy church? What is... That theta should aim at, and particularly to see uh, members of the local church who are regenerate, born again, and who have a credible profession of faith. What do they need to look to? Whether the Christian, the, the, the believer is at work or in your family, whether you're younger, whether you're old, your behavior must match and exemplify what you claim to believe. That is... The first point in our text, verse 1, that the graceful doctrine then leads to a graceful living. And we have a command from Paul to Titus, verse 1. And it starts with, but, 
Because in opposition to what we saw last time, the false teachers, what they stand for, their false ideas about God and the bad works that are coming out of, as for you, Titus, in sharp contrast to that, you must speak or preach, speak up for the things which are proper, sound doctrine, things that are befitting or appropriate to things that are going along with what is sound, correct, solid, healthy, wholesome doctrine. Not just mentally on paper. Oh yes, I believe those things. But it involves your life. Becomes in tune with the true word of God. And it leads to right living and mature Christian character. So when he says, must match what he does. Titus, that's his job now. That what we contrast the false doctrine that we saw last week with preaching a doctrine that leads to a life that is transformed. Some say that doctrine divides. I mean, even among uh, Christian churches. And so what they do, they decide to reject doctrine altogether. That uh, uh, truth becomes watered down. And what happens, however, is how they even manipulate truth. Uh, I think about the culture around here, especially the Church of Christ culture around here, was born out of a rejection of creeds and confessions and church structures. And it was born out of, I would say, overreacting in some ways to this idea of doctrine as being something bad. But while they had some real concern, that there was a, a real problem in the church at the time in 1800 with dry orthodoxy. However, they ended up rejecting good doctrine, solid creeds, biblical authorities in the process. I, mean, I could say Church of Christ or the Mormons, the Seventh-day Adventists, all these movements that were born in the 1800. I was reading a book in, in the past that is called Christianity and Democracy in America, and it proves that these religious movements were born in 1800. They all claim to be very much biblicists, but many times they acted in kind of disrespect toward anything remotely doctrinal. Anything remotely, uh, especially Calvinist, by the way. And so, we must be careful, friends, not to overreact to some of the issues that obviously might be there in the church. It might be true issues. But we still need sound, theologically, doctrin doctrinal preaching and teaching. We don't despise learning as if if it is truthful learning, we don't despise all authority if it's biblical authority. We don't throw away 2,000 years of church just because of some things were bad in the past. So Paul commands Titus to preach and teach sound doctrine. And you, you better keep an eye on me or anyone who stands on this pulpit that we remain sound in doctrine. Particularly sound in our understanding and in our preaching of the ultimate hope that preaching is supposed to point to, which is the hope of the gospel. The only hope that we have, that sinners who are under the judgment of God for their sin can find rescue and restoration and redemption in Jesus Christ. That without the gospel, our statement of faith I was rereading in past weeks on the website says that churches become dead and that's exactly what happens when you lose that message. So teach good doctrine. Secondly, Let's look at some of these age groups, these household codes. And we start with the elderly. Verse 2 starts with older men. 
Titus, like Timothy, has to pass on what he knows to the church. Make sure that the church now follows certain guidelines. And there are different age groups here. The elderly is the first one. Old men. Just like previous chapter, we already referred to old, not just old in terms of gray hair and older in age, but this refers to mature in the faith. People who are experienced, who have been believers for a long time. They have experienced and therefore are able to mentor and disciple the younger in the faith in the church. And those older men are to be sober, serious. Uh, their thinking must be sober about things. Reverent, or you could say honest, or dignified, or worthy of respect. Temperate, which is discreet, or prudent, or moderate. Having self-control. And what are the three areas where this soundness, the same word of verse 1 is used here, in faith, in love, and in patience. That is the places where the health and soundness of their, their outcome needs to be. In, in faith, in trusting the Lord, in love toward the saints, and in patience, which is a steadfastness, an endurance, a bearing with things. And this is obviously pointing to Christ who is the perfect model in all those things. Because older Christians have a longer experience. Okay, They have been through seasons of life. They have been tested through ups and downs. Their faith has undergone the fire of temptation. They know how to counsel and orient people who for the first time perhaps, younger in the faith, are facing that same very first time the, the problem. And so they are to be a good example for the younger and we all need still to grow. And so I want to empower those of us who are more mature in the faith to see your responsibility to actually help spiritually those who are younger in the faith to grow with you. That goes with the older women as well. Verse 3. Now he passes to the same. Likewise, just like the older men, be reverent. And how do you show your reverence in your behavior, in your demeanor? Not just in modesty, but in behavior. Not just in attires, but in the way you behave. You're a quiet and respectful and pure in the way you act. Also, verse 3 continues, Not slanderers, which that means false accusing, a malicious form of gossip. The words we use for uh, the devil is actually used in this verse 3. The devil is a slanderer. Which it warns us how demonic can be in the church if we start to accuse in, in ways that is engaging. I mean, this is the definition of gossip. When you engage with delight in scandal, mongering out of hate for that person that you're speaking about. Not going around speak of evil of others. That is why James 1.4.11 says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. So if you say something about someone that you will not talk in front of them, and I'm not referring to any type of talk, but the idle talk, the foolish or malicious spreading of rumors or facts with a divisive and destructive effect, I'm telling you, in the church. So we must seek to avoid or go to the person directly. And I realize how we can all get tempted in this. It takes a time to mortify this tendency in our tongue. 
but the text is clear. Now, don't get me wrong. There are situations, okay, when you are genuinely seeking counsel about a matter. And it involves someone else and there's justice at stake, okay? And evil must be addressed. So this does not necessarily qualify as a gossip. There are times that we have to do that because this excuse of, of, of uh, stopping gossip has actually allowed, for example, in some churches to tolerate sexual abuse. That is an example that comes on top of my mind where, oh, you must not speak about this. It's like, well, if evil is at stake, if justice is at stake, and I'm genuinely seeking counsel to solve this problem, then we must speak up. Now, next requirement of older women, not given to much wine, addicted or slave to drunkenness. Now, it seems that when you are older, you might, might have more time on your hands and that the temptation is greater to indulge in anything that is unhelpful and anything that is intoxicating or that is not glorifying to the temple of God that is our body. And older women, it says our text, must be teachers of good things. Now this is the only case where older women, more mature, can teach other younger women in the faith. And we already saw that the whole congregation that is excluded from the words of Timothy we saw a few weeks ago. But they can teach younger women, disciple younger women in the faith. Teaching good things, things that are noble, things that are honorable. They can give good counsel. So that younger women who are trying to explore choices or things or struggles can pursue right behavior. I mean, why does everyone in the South runs to grandma when they got trouble? Because she's got wisdom. She's got goodness, love, sobriety. She's been through so much. And a little conversation can clear up so many of the issues that me as a young person needs some help. You see the, the point there? They can, however, model that as well in their behavior. And it's also true, friends, the opposite. That a person can have been part of a, can have been part of a church forever, can have been elderly in age but it doesn't necessarily mean that he's more mature in the Lord in fact a newer member can actually be more mature in the Lord than an elderly we're not trying to score points here what we see here and Leonard Ravenly has a quote on this maturity comes from obedience not necessarily from age that the elderly should have key role in modeling and mentoring and discipling younger people in the church. Both among the older men, but also among older women as they disciple younger in the faith. So we need the elderly. I mean, so many churches today want to only target young people. And uh, it is sad indeed that we have an entire generation in America that is not anymore going to church. And however... Some churches are seeing, you know, old people as an obstacle in the church. Or almost something disrespectful, like outdated, that we don't need, right? And the fact that youngers have abandoned the church is a problem in itself. But older people are not the cause of that. Immaturity among those who go to church might be the cause. Because, friends, we need the reverence, the sobriety, and the moderation, the sober-mindedness that elderly, more mature Christians can bring to the table. Because they are more seasoned, they are more experienced, they've been through ups and downs of the Christian life, and it can prove invaluable. 
to us as we navigate circumstances at church. So do you conceive of your role? I know some of the widows are not here tonight, but um, I'll be sure to tell this message to them. That their role, whether it's a grandma or a grandpa or, or an elderly, can be actually very much strong in this way. That the influence you have, even in unbelieving members around us, even instead of wasting our time, so many times we can sw- waste time in small town gossips or other distractions. That an elderly in the church, according to Paul, can perceive his calling or her calling to be found faithful and active to be an example in this area, to leave that legacy behind. Let's now look at the younger people, verses 4 to 8, particularly the younger women. We begin, verse 4, younger women, once again, in the faith, not necessarily in age. He admonished them to train or instruct Younger women, the same thing. It's uh, th- this uh, from Timothy, First Timothy two, verse eleven and twelve does not take place during the church service, but in a daily life or at times with a group of women, there is this discipleship going on, not with other men, as we saw. Paul is clear in Timothy: I do not allow a woman to teach or exert authority over men. But there is a way in which other younger women can are called here to live, to love their husband and their children. To be living sober or quiet life in mind, to be disciplined and temperate. And as they look at the more mature women in the church, the younger women should know how to then translate that in their marriage, in their marriage and in their parenting. To be a loving and and a, and a a loving wife and a loving mother. So the primary responsibility of a younger woman is not necessarily to have a career, to become accomplished, to have, become a university graduate, to win a prize for this or that. While those things, don't get me wrong, are not necessarily wrong. Okay? I'm not saying that it's wrong. But, I mean, we, we live in a different world than the first century, definitely. But there is an untimely biblical principle that remains here. That a younger woman in the faith, her primary, primary responsibility is toward her husband and his children. The, the reason why there's a lot of divorces right now, I fear, is because of this principle. That this is no longer emphasized. It sounds like something gone out of fashion. The husband, however, should have the pride of place in a wife. The risk is when kids and grandkids become the almost sur- surrogate of the affection of the wife instead of the husband. Have you ever seen that? Where it should actually be directed toward the husband first. That this is the primary responsibility. Verse 5 continues, the younger women in the faith are also to be discreet, sensible, wise, virtuous. We, we saw the book of Ruth, we saw in uh, the whole series of the book of Ruth, and we learn how that looked like, to be chaste and pure and modest including clothing but it's more than that and to be verse 5 says keepers at home or makers or domestic or workers at home keepers of their own houses we could say which means you watch over what happens to your house and uh, you care for it you make sure it is in order The, the the very word economy actually means the management of the house 
And friends, there is a sense in which uh, mothers and wives are the, to be the managers of things at home. The queen of the house, we could say. And she becomes, it, the house becomes her workplace. And that's where they must spend most of their time staying at home. As opposed to going around minding other people's business. You see, the problem in the early church was, in Ephesus in particular, there was younger widows. They were running lazy. And they were going from house to house. And the, the gossip problem was becoming very serious. Minding other people's business instead of focusing on their family and being sure. I mean, this is, this is the greatest evidence, friends, for a wife and a mother to be a housekeeper. That is something that is actually ideal biblically. Now, again, we live in a different culture. And I'm, I'm not saying that this needs to be a rule and, and, and then a woman that goes out and does things is, is necessarily wrong. But sadly, most women today, this is, we're, we're going from one extreme to the other. Most women today, they, be, they want to become business women. They despise uh, chastity, modesty, or even in their speech and live in the world. And that, friends, is not ideal. Doesn't mean that it's ideal for all women in a society to stay single undetermined. In order to finish college, to have a career and all the rest before finally I decide to have one child maybe. And even then, she, she might be always absent. And then the neglect of the home and problems, marital problems grow until divorce comes. That a woman's domestic and familiar duties are to be her center of gravity. That friends, it's almost like her joy. It's in making sure that her household is well, like Proverbs 31 says. And let's continue the list here. Uh, younger women, verse 5, continues by saying they are to be good and obedient. Now, good as into kind and obedient as into submissive. Respecting the authority of the husband. Willing, in other words, to adapt and to be subordinate themselves and their will to the husband. As unto the Lord, which means the husband better believe and obey the Lord, obviously. But she's called to submit. It implies respect for him, obedience and service, accountability. Within that marriage relationship, there is a humble attitude that then allows the husband to be empowered by the wife to actually lead her in a proper way. In a way that is godly. Now, the husband better do a good job at that, that's for sure. We all have our responsibility. The husband better not be passive like Adam that allows the snake to enter the family and destroy it and bring death to her wife and himself under his watch. But he must lead sacrificially. However, the woman must realize that if he fails to do that, it is not our area of responsibility to step in like Eve, taking the fruit, trying to lead the part of the deal in the marriage is to obey God's word by submitting and helping your husband to lead. But even in one spouse is an unbeliever. First Peter tells about this. The submissive conduct of the wife, according to God's word, can win them over to the Lord. That is how powerful biblical forms of submission obviously can be always abused. And we don't want to go there. 
Because look at what, what the text says. That the word of God may not be blasphemed. That the, this lack of submission is a threat to the word of God. To be discredited and dishonored. To be evil spoken of by the world. I mean, this is a serious thing. That those who know and can observe this, let's say, couple, may not blaspheme the word of God because they fail to obey the word on this very point. It's so interesting, isn't it? That such an element that you would think is secondary, right? It's such a serious thing and it causes the word of God to be exposed to reproach. That the Bible gets disgraced. When the opposite is true, when there's a rebellious or domineering, bossy type of wife that is, uh, Proverbs says, it's better to be in the house rooftop than with a quarrelsome wife, then unbelievers get to malign and slander the Bible. Look at those Christians. They speak evil of the Bible because they look at Christian and their marriage and the whole submission thing is not working for them either. So they look down on the Bible because of bad behavior from Christians, particularly wives in this case. There's been a scandal in, of a Christian, famous Christian teacher recently who was a defender of homeschooling and thinks that we might like big Bill Gothard. However, there's, a, there's been a real, real scandal going around this person and very sad things were happening. And there's a recent documentary that came out. It's called Shiny Happy People. And it's really showing bad things that were going on in that. Okay? Okay, there were, however, we don't throw the fish with the bone. I mean, there were some biblical principle. The problem is where they were abused. And so the documenter says, look what happened if you follow these Christians. But the reality is, the problem is in the sinfulness of these people and not in the scripture. So there's a lot of slander for over biblical submission. I, I realize this is a delicate topic. There's a lot of slander over marriage and Christian marriage in these days where we live in a very egalitarian type of uh, marriage, feminism. The world looks forward to have something to say to criticize Christians. Either the abusive patterns of submission when man abuses their place of authority and they pretend submission from the wife for unbiblical commands or troubles in families or churches where women uh, just really don't keep their place. And the biblical pattern of a woman submitted to the man, just as Christ submits to Christ, to, to the church. The church submits to Christ, so the woman submits to, to, to the man. And the man dies for and sacrifices his life for his wife, just as Christ gave his life for the church. All that is gone. And this, friends, sends a very bad witness to the watching world. While we don't cater our work and the things we do to unbelievers, the church still must guard its reputation in this unbelieving world. The worst is when Christians uh, can bring shame to the gospel before watching unbelievers by failing to, whether it's the wife submitting the husband leadership, whether it's the words or action, Paul is saying that by so doing, you bring the gospel in disrepute. May it not be that this is the impression that people get as they observe our marriage. Let us pray that God gives us healthy Christian marriage. Let's look at young men now, after young women, verse 6 to 8. Likewise, same exhortation to the young women, now he turns to young men. Young in age, but also in a spiritually and mentally immature state. 
call them baby Christians, we could call, call them cage stage Calvinists or the like, they need some help. They must be urged, verse 6 says, look how critical is this, to be sober-minded, to be moderate, to behave carefully, to control yourself, to live disciplined life, that you take life seriously. Not just with prudence, but with restraint. That you have a good grip of yourself. Indeed, the number one thing that young people struggle with is this. The complete lack of self-control. And it leads to all sort of disaster. Verse 7, yes, Titus is physically young, verse 7, but is not spiritually young. Remember what Tim Timothy was told by Paul. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, conduct, love, spirit, faith, and purity. 1 Timothy 4, 2, 12. So what is here in view again is uh, a person who is young and immature in the faith, not necessarily in age. But he's to be show, Titus is to show himself in all things to be a pattern of good works. The model that we saw in previous verses. Whether you're a dad, whether you're a mom or a teacher or a coach or a manager. You know that it's not enough to tell people to do something. You have to model it. You have to, all the more in the church, all the more in discipleship, in shepherding, in modeling is everything. That we not just say things, but we do. Once again, the focus is good works here. The good example in good behavior accompanied with the doctrine, the integrity in doctrine. Which is, means the doctrine is not adulterated by false teachings that we saw last time. Not open to reproach. The same words that we saw in chapter 1. And reverence. Titus is to show gravity, dignity, seriousness. But also sincerity, integrity, incorruptibility. True for Titus, but the goal is that the rest of the church gets to this, this uh, level of reverence. The focus is obviously for Titus in preaching. Verse 8, Paul goes back to what he says in chapter 1. He says, elders, qualification, sound speech that cannot be condemned. That cannot be reproved. So that the opponent may be ashamed having nothing to say to you. There is no ground of accusations. And if, if some reproach comes, it is not because of the life or the lack of sound teaching in the preacher, in Titus. How does he do that? He looks to Jesus. And that is, as we looked last week, like the, the sadness when that is not the case in many you know, pastors who don't practice what they preach. So Matthew Harry has a thought on this, that the flower of youth never appears more beautiful. Than when it bends toward the son of righteousness. That you give your youth to the Lord. That is the most beautiful thing. Younger people are likewise called to set the example with a focus particular on their family. For the good of the church. That's why 1 John 2.13 says to I am writing to you young man. Because you have overcome the evil one. Young man in our midst. Do you want to overcome Satan? Do you want to be overcomer over Satan or you want to be dominated by him? You want to be enslaved by him? Do you want to know, young man, what God expects of you? You start with self-control and you won't go wrong. Friends, we live in a world today, especially in the past 20, 30 years, I want to say, since the sexual revolution even. 
temptations, pressures are intense for younger people. Competition, compromises everywhere. Peer pressures. Just go for it. It's not a problem. The greatest temptation for a young man or woman is just to follow his heart. To cave into the pressure. To fall prey or all sort of temptation. Because he's unable to dominate his body. Whether it's through the use of, of, of things. Pornography, music, drugs. Whether dating or worse marrying an unbeliever. Who has no clue what it means to be a responsible adult. And then you crash and you ruin your life. And you're a slave of impulses. And then you make bad decisions that last for years. And pastors, preachers as well. And mature Christians. All the, the, the mature Christians. Older in the faith are called to set the example before the youth. Most of evangelical preaching you today. Is it characterized by what you call this gravity that we just talked about? The gravitas. The, the Latins. Said the dignity, the seriousness, the solemnity of the preaching. All you watch is jokes and clown types of sermons. I mean, that's sad. That the pulpit is disgraced by irreverence, not to mention the false teaching that we saw last chapter, our last evening service. Even among most respected preachers, the worst of all, the integrity lacking when the life of the preacher disqualifies him from whatever he says. So let us watch in our life and conduct. Now let's go to our fourth point. We now go to the workplace. We saw the family. We saw the age groups, old and young. Now we go to workers. How does it look to have and to show God's grace at work? In verses 9 to 10, let me say a word about Christian work ethic. Okay? At this point in verse 9, Paul switches from family to work and he exhorts, he urges. I mean, this is very important, okay? In God's economy, this is important. He speaks about servants and bond servants to be obedient to their masters. Now, this was referring back then to probably slavery. I mean, slavery was, had been part of many ancient societies. Believe it or not, it was actually the advent of Christianity that brought an end to slavery all the way to the Middle Ages and after. Now, it surfaced again. But again, in Africa, it was already there before it was utilized by French and British. And pa Paul, however, doesn't come there to invite slaves to rebellion. And today, this instruction, we could apply it to any workers, any type of workers. He invites them to remain obedient and submissive to their masters in every regard, well-pleasing in all things, to think their best to satisfy their masters. That involves, in our text, not answering back, not to be argumentative, not to gainsaying, do what is wanted without discussing about it, without answering, yes, but I think, you know, contradicting them, you compile, comply with the demands, However, as we, we saw both in the marriage, here it doesn't mean that if it leads you to sin that you have to obey. No. Matters of conscience, obviously, you are called to disobey. But what does it look here to be a loyal worker is what Paul wants to tell Titus. And verse 10 tells us that they are not to be, I'm going to misspell here, pilfering or purloining. Now, what does that mean? Literally, this word in verse 10 means to set apart to yourself. That you keep back, 
that you steal personal property or pinch it away by stealing. You take something by unjust weights or measure that doesn't really belongs to you. That goes beyond your assigned salary. Now you may say, well, I don't steal. But here's the thing in this word is more subtle. Paul is commanding to particularly if it's something of relatively little value. Just to give you an idea, it's as something as little as taking a bunch of pens from an office. It's something as little as taking a roll of toilet paper in a public bathroom or napkins in a buffet that might be little, it might be not that big deal, but it's hindering your Christian witness a lot. That's what Paul is saying. If this is true of these little items, I'll tell you, meditate what God thinks of bigger things. That is a bad witness for a supposedly Christian worker to do this. Instead, what are we to do? We are to show all good fidelity, faithfulness. That, that's what it looks like when you are entirely and truly trustworthy in your work. That you are steadfast. You show complete honesty by not stealing, even if it's a small thing. And you do that not just some of the time, but all the time. Because remember what Jesus says. He who is faithful in little things, he is faithful in big things. But he who is unfaithful in little things cannot be faithful in big things. Friends, obedience is to be obedience whether it's easy or not. Okay? Especially when it's not easy. Especially where there's a lot of risk. Peter likewise exhorts workers to be subjected to their bosses in 1 Peter 2.18. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. That is the measure of our Christian obedience. And like for women submitted to men, a faithful worker now adorns the doctrine of God in the way he submits at work. Do you realize that? That is the purpose of your work. To... Adorn, bring an ornament. Literally, this refers to cosmetics. Think about it. A woman embellishes herself to make her appearance attractive to her husband. Workers are to make the gospel appear beautiful by their complete obedience at work. Almost making the gospel attractive to the unbelieving boss. Almost bringing credit to the fact that there's something really good about these Christians and their faith. That's what it's supposed to look like. That you adorn the doctrine of God in all things. You're almost lustering such doctrine like a shoe in all things. That's the Christian worker. Any Christian, not just older Christians or mature Christians. Any Christian is called here to be impeccable in his conduct at work. By his integrity at work, he will make people want to become believers in Jesus as their Savior. That's what it looks like to glorify God. That's what it looks like to give purpose, meaning, and legacy to your work. That is far greater than just getting a little salary at the end of the month. That's why John Calvin says this, friend. There is no work, however vile or sordid, that does not glisten before God. That is the beauty of bringing glory to God in our work. However, let me warn you, and I say warn you, of how the opposite is also true. That when a self-professing Christian goes to work, disobeys superiors, complains as he work, calls his boss names, 
seeks to do things only as a side service. When I'm looked upon, oh, I'm going to do it. But when he's not here, the boss, I'm going to do whatever I want. He has big words in his mouth. He says, I want to do what is right. I'm a Christian. But he only does what is right when he's seen by people. When he's convenient for his pocket. Faithful in this, but not in that. There's a double standard for everything. I'm faithful with what he's entrusted with. Steals part of the product for his retirement plan. I was watching a movie, a Christian movie. There's, there's that. This man had gathered. He was a pharmaceutical uh, businessman. He had gathered, like, I don't know, thousands and thousands of samples. Stealing them before he brought them to the, to the, to the customer. And he had kept them in the garage. Once he comes to Christ... He just says, I cannot, I have to. Yes, he has been fired already. But he goes there, even though he has been fired, and he returns every single item. Okay, that is, that is what I call true repentance right there. And that is what it looks like too. But if you're unfaithful what you're entrusted, you, you cheat on the price over, over and over and again. And what do you think all this, what do you think? That a person who is an unbeliever looks this self-professing Christian. What do you think he's doing to the doctrine of God? I'll tell you what, he, what God thinks. It's a stinky rag at the feet of the Savior. Only good for the trash. It's like spitting on the Savior to his face. You're turning people around you away from God by your bad behavior. That's how bad it is before God. If we don't resolve to deal with this sooner or later, you might taste what it means to remain without work. I was watching this YouTube channel just last night. I couldn't sleep and I opened this YouTube video and it talks about this uh, Christian, okay? He has a YouTube channel and he says in 2019 he had lost everything. He had lost his house. He had lost his clothes. He had lost his possessions. And worse, he had lost his peace. Weeks before the first child was born, they bought a house. However, the house had a problem. They overreacted. And so they ran to their mom and dad's basement. That is what the Proverbs says. He, he quotes this. The wicked flee when no one pursues. But the righteous are as bold as a lion. And he says, isn't that a little harsh to refer to yourself as wicked? And he says, honestly, I truly believe that these issues happen as a chastisement from the Lord. For years, I lived in disobedience. For years, I refused to repent of this one certain sin. Not every time is discipline, friends. But there is an instance. And in this case, it was. Think of Joseph. When he was sold into Egypt. Many years have passed. Now Joseph appears before his brethren. He's disguised. They don't recognize. But he puts them to jail. What is the first word that comes out of the mind? This is happening because of our brothers. It's like their conscience was speaking an instant thought. Their conscience was guilty. And therefore your sin will find you out. That you need to realize how sobering this is. When you hear the word of God. And you deal as a Christian worker with or without your submission. With or without your faithfulness at work. You can impact your witness for good or bad. Just as our culture has detached family roles from biblical pattern of submission, even our society has completely lost the healthy understanding of submission at work 
I mean, think about it. A worse example of this is in the military right now. It's completely out of control. And in America here, I mean, we particularly want to emphasize our rights. And yes, there's a place for disobedience when obeying violates matters of conscience and God's word. But to avoid obedience at work simply for your personal wishes? And then you claim to be a Christian? And, and you're supposed to commend the gospel by the way you live in the community. Instead, when you properly submit to authority... I mean, isn't that what Jesus did? Despite being in the form of God, he did not consider his equality with God something to be hold on to, but he emptied himself. And he became obedient to the point of death on the cross. Beloved, if this is how much Christ was willing to go in his submission to the Father's eternal plan for unworthy rebels like you and me, how much more should we when faced with unjust treatment at work, how much more should we in every area of our life? So we definitely disagree with the saying of St. Francis, preach the gospel if necessary, use words. You might have heard the statement is wrong. Because teaching and sharing doctrine are still necessary to share the gospel and to be saved. How will they believe unless they have someone preach? says Romans. Faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. That we need to communicate actually how God, what is the gospel? That God is perfect. He's holy. He's righteous. He's pure. He's completely sinless. There is no uncleanness in Him. And we instead, let's look at a list of what our character qualities. That we are wretched, we are depraved, we, we are prone to evil since birth and we continue to twist and suppress the truth that God speaks to us, whether in, in creation or in His Word. And there's a judgment for that rebellion against the Holy God. And that judgment leads to hell. And guess what? The judgment has now been bore upon the shoulder of Jesus Christ on the cross. He paid the wrath of God for your sin. And what is your response? That you turn away, you change your mind from your sin, and you trust in this sacrifice to open the gates of heaven. Which again, I did not plan this, but if, if something touched you tonight, and you feel that's me. I am the culprit in the story. I am the one who has transgressed this list. The goal is not just to feel bad about yourself. Not just there to remain there half in, half out. No, but to finally throw in the towel for a real surrender. That you confess your sins to God. You say, God, I have wronged you. I, I wronged your law. And I am worthy of your judgment. And now you turn to the cross to find forgiveness. Be open to the fact that a superficial understanding of the gospel. And particularly I'm talking about a, a, what is... The meaning of repentance. I have in view a family member right now. Who has been going to church all his life. He's a Protestant from my wife's side. He has known the scripture all his life. He, he thinks he's a Christian. But he has no clue what it means to tur truly turn away from his sin. And trust in Christ. And there are things that are coming out in his life. And he's unwilling to deal with them. Leave that trap. 
Your mind must change, friend. Realize that you can't heal yourself. You cannot clean yourself up, but His blood can clean you completely. And so you resolve before Him to live away this double standard, to drop the mask from now on. And all the joy of obedience that flows for you and your family. That story I gave you. That man ultimately says that after that season that he finally realized what was, what was the reason of all this down spiral. He turns around and God blessed him. He gave him one of the seasons of reviving in the soul that he could have ever dreamed. But friends, this is what God expects us to conclude tonight. To... Act as work as Christians. That it impact drastically our gospel witness to others either for good or bad. That God calls you to work hard in your character growth. To display true spirituality and to communicate those truths to even, even through the way we live. In the church but also in your family. And all the way to the broader society in your workplace. That your children, your grandchildren, your neighbors, whatever, your ages, whether you're old or young, God can use you and there are strengths in each age groups we saw in the church. Not so that you compartmentalize them. That's what many churches do. There's an age group for everything. And God makes us, however, intentionally different ages so that older gets the help from the young. The women submit to the men. The men lead the women. The bosses lead the employee well and the employees obey. And so we grow from each other. Our co-workers even. This is what it truly means to get to let our light shine before others. So that, Matthew 5 says, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There is a sense in which all of this should attract people to God, to God, believe it or not. Or sadly, if you remain in your compromises, you're actually turning them away from God. So we should say, instead of St. Francis, as you preach the gospel, use words, but still words that are matched by your works. Let us pray.